The Way Out Podcast, episode 186. I'm Mike, and I am a drug addict. My stories, like every other addict, ended up in a spot where I was absolutely powerless and brought to my knees. I found recovery. The thing I'm really excited about is um, today what I have found is that we as recovering people have a superpower that most business professionals do not have. And we usually talk about uh, recovery as a way to neutralize the negative of addiction, but I'm talking about like, it's the best thing about me. Like I thank God for my addiction before I ever start talking to him about my recovery, because I think it is that powerful. And one night I find myself on the beach. Um, I'm out in Venice beach. It's 2 AM. I'm, I'm, I'm out of my mind, but I want more. And I'm sitting in a triangle of what to me was a triangle of masks people hiding their true selves. I had a homeless man on my left and a prostitute on my right. And the reason I was there was because I wanted the homeless man's blunt. He wanted the prostitute and she wanted me to be her last customer for the evening. All of us were completely lying about what we had to offer. And we were, wear- we were hiding our true selves. We were wearing a mask in order to get what we wanted. And so I wanted the man's blunt, the homeless man's blunt. He wanted obviously the prostitute. And she wanted my money. So I was pretending that I had money. He was pretending he had more drugs and she was pretending that she wasn't attempting a business transaction. And this isn't unique to me this moment, but I'm sure anybody out there can relate to hiding behind a mask to try to get what I want and need and having my mask bump into everybody else's when I was out there in active addiction. I saw myself in the mirror and I was like, dude, I don't even know who you are. I went to the Betty Ford uh, Center out in Rancho Mirage, California. It was very surreal uh, going to rehab. Um, and then I had a buddy, like a guy that was like my mentor, like when I showed up there. And within the first five hours of me being there, he uh, escaped. <laughs> he like left. Like we obviously weren't like, you know, held captive, but I was like, okay, crap. I guess I don't even know if I'm supposed to stay here or what. But um, no, I went to inpatient. And then I got the message that nobody in inpatient rehab ever wants to get. And that was the doctors coming to me and saying, Mike, you're sicker than most of the addicts here and you need more treatment after you leave here. And they gave me two brochures, one for my favorite place, Monterey, California, um, and the other for a place called Nunnally, Tennessee. And the brochure for Nunnally, Tennessee had like cowboys and horses on it. And I was like, F that, I'm not doing that. (laughs) Um, And I went back to my room and I realized, I, I heard echoing, your best thinking got you here. Your best thinking got you here. And I, I was an atheist at the time, but the first time in my recovery that I chose God's will over mine was when I chose not only Tennessee, I chose the other place mm. simply because my will was telling me to go to Monterey. Mm. And they sent me out to not only Tennessee, which is near Nashville, and that's why I live in Nashville now. And no, I do not own a cowboy hat or cowboy boots, <laughs> but I do love it here, and the recovery here is awesome. Welcome, Way Out faithful and first-timers, to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and AllRecoveryRings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's AllRecoveryRings.com. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group 
that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Every week, we'll be asking for your thoughts on next week's topic. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution. This podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and this week we've got an interview that will push the limits on your conventional understanding of what it means when we hear the 12-step vernacular around practicing the principles of recovery in all our affairs. Entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker Michael Brody-Waite contends far too many of us in recovery are likely and unwittingly compartmentalizing the tremendous power embodied in the 12 steps exclusively to our addictions, all the while shielding the other parts of our lives that could be similarly transformed if we only applied the very same principles of recovery to other parts of our lives, namely, our work lives. Michael and I discuss specifically what elements of recovery can transform your work life and how to apply them in his new book, Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts, how living like a drug addict will transform the way you lead yourself and others, all the while sprinkling in his recovery journey and the spiritual wisdom embodied within his 17 plus years of continuous sobriety. So listen up. Michael Brody, wait. Thank you so much for taking time to spend with us here on the Way Out podcast. I can't wait to dig into your story, dig into the book that you've got on tap, which has some serious spiritual truth, man. There's, it's, it's crazy how many spiritual nuggets are in that book. So we would definitely get to that. But before we do any of that, I want you to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm Mike and I am a drug addict. That is how I'm going to introduce myself because that's how I introduce myself everywhere. And that's it. That's all you need to know. And I'm out. I love it. I love it. I absolutely love it. And I embrace it that way, too. So I, I like I like the full frontal, man. <laughs> I never heard anybody say it like it's a full frontal. Um, I think that's the first time I've ever given anyone a full frontal. Um, <laughs> but you know what? That's cool. There's a first for everything, man. I thought Absolutely. that was my four step, but it's not. <laughs> it did get pretty intimate and vulnerable right there. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, so uh, so the really short version of me, uh, I'm from California. Uh, I, I'll, I'll go into my story, but my story is like every other addict. 
um, ended up in a spot where I was absolutely powerless and brought to my knees. I found recovery and I think that part isn't necessarily that different, but I want to go into the story. But I think the thing I'm really excited about is um, today what I have found is that we as recovering people have a superpower that most business professionals do not have. And we usually talk about uh, recovery as a way to neutralize the negative of addiction, but I'm talking about like, it's the best thing about me. Like I thank God for my addiction before I ever start talking to him about my recovery, because I think it is that powerful. And I, and, and so like, that's, that's, that's the trip I'm on right now. I love the, the, this idea that we're going to take the principles of recovery and the principles of that we work in uh, our program of recovery, and we're, we're going to supercharge those in a way that allow us to really uh, go next level on this, right? Yeah. So I can't wait to dig into some of that stuff because it was, the spiritual principle saved my life. It saved so many lives of those near and dear to me and so many that have been on this podcast. But how do we take those spiritual principles and take them to the next level? So this will be really, yeah. really fun. Before we yeah. do that, tell me what life was like for you before you got sober. Yeah. So for me, you know, similar to a lot of people, but like for me specifically, I, I always think about these two different stories. I think about um, one night, so I'm 23 years old. I've been kicked out of college. I've been kicked out of my job, kicked out of my house. My car has been repossessed. I'm throwing up blood. My sole obsession is to get high every day and do whatever I need to do to do that, whoever I need to hurt. And the only thing keeping me from the streets is my buddy's couch. Um, and I show my gratitude by stealing from him during the day when he leaves for work and eating his food and drinking his alcohol. And one night I find myself on the beach. Um, I'm out in Venice Beach. It's 2 a.m. I'm, I'm, I'm out of my mind, but I want more. And I'm sitting in a triangle of what to me was a triangle of masks people hiding their true selves. I had a homeless man on my left and a prostitute on my right. And the reason I was there was because I wanted the homeless man's blunt. He wanted the prostitute and she wanted me to be her last customer for the evening. All of us were completely lying about what we had to offer. And we were, we were hiding our true selves and we were wearing a mask in order to get what we wanted. And so I wanted the man's blunt, the homeless man's blunt. He wanted, obviously, the prostitute. And she wanted my money. So I was pretending that I had money. He was pretending he had more drugs. And she was pretending that she wasn't attempting a business transaction. And this isn't unique to me, this moment. But I'm sure anybody out there can relate to hiding behind a mask to try to get what I want and need. And having my mask bump into everybody else's when I was out there in active addiction. And, and that feeling like that fraud, right? Feeling yeah. like you're an imposter. Yeah, the hustle, man. Like, so the, one of the things I say is the difference between addicts and leaders is both of them hide behind a mask to get what they want. It's just being a leader pays better. Hmm. Like, that's <laughs> the difference. So, you know, I wanted the high, a leader, a, a professional, a business person wants the success, the money, the power, the whatever. But I was going to hide my true self to get what I needed. Um, and, you know, when I think about my bottom, um, I woke up one day. And it was the strangest thing. It was like the first time I, it was like the first time I had seen myself in the mirror in years. Like I'd seen myself in the mirror. It was the first time I really saw who I was and I didn't know who I was. How old were you when you started using, when you started drinking? Um, when I started using probably like 17, Okay, 17. So um, for six years, it was the center point of my life. 
And did it go from zero to 100 for you pretty quick or was it a gradual process? What was that like? It was, it's interesting. It was, a, it was, it was gradual at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to, I went to, I, you know, I started using in high school, but it was just, you know, whenever I could and, and all that kind of stuff. College, my first year, I ended up like not showing up to any of my classes because I would just get plastered. Um, and then at some point in my experience in college, I decided the way I was going to not become an alcoholic like my father was I was just going to smoke a ton of weed. And so I tried to do that. Um, and then when that didn't work, I wanted more alcohol. And then when those didn't work, I wanted painkillers and I wanted, you know, just all the stuff. And eventually I just got booted out of college because literally from the minute I woke up to the minute I passed out at night, every single day, that's what I was doing. And, and so the last, um, it started to accelerate when I was like 20 and, um, it just, it just, it, it hit me like a freight train, man. It's like, I can still distinctly remember it's my, um, junior year of college is when I went from Thursday, Friday, Saturday night to every day morning Mm -hmm. tonight. And it was like that. So I don't, I still don't really understand how that happened that quickly. So many of us can identify with playing that game of whack-a-mole with our yeah. substances, with our addictive behaviors, yep. right? We tamp down, well, just like you talked about. Boy, the alcohol is a problem. I'm not going to become like dad. It's so, uh, you know, weed is going to be my deal. That got out of control. That's not working. That became unmanageable, right? I'm going to switch to pills, to this, to that, yep. to the other thing, Right. In drawing yep. those um, those those s- seemingly arbitrary lines in the sand, well, I'm not going to drink on, or I'm not going to use on Mondays, yeah. uh, because that's that means I have a problem, right? Um, in crossing those lines, right? The first time I got um, sober or clean uh, is when I signed up for Netflix. <laughs> I was one of the first customers of Netflix because I got clean in 2002. So, mm-hmm. so like 2001, 2000, back when they were mailing out DVDs. Right. I was like, right. And the little envelopes. If yeah. I watch a movie at night, I cannot touch the drugs and alcohol. Sure. So, the first night I watched a movie, somehow I couldn't sleep, but I, I went to bed and, and I didn't have it. Next day, I was like, okay, I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to work out. I, it, it's a whole new me. And then I watched a movie that night. And so I had two days. But on the third night, I was sitting there watching the movie. I'm like, you know what would be really great while I'm watching this movie? Is to get toasted. And and so, you know, that was my first attempt, you know, trying to get clean on my own. Um, Netflix was my sponsor, I guess. Right, right. Um, right. In my meetings. Man, there's a passage like that in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Very, you know, uh, you don't go great with this sandwich, you know, and this milk. (laughs) <laughs> whiskey you know yeah. right so yeah. very, <laughs> that's the yeah. that's the tw- that's the 2000s version of <laughs> yes yeah so uh netflix did not help me stop using but yeah i mean doing whatever you know creating those arbitrary lines crossing those lines and then just you know eventually being somebody that has no boundaries right mm-hmm. and it's just the all-consuming need to do whatever i need to do to get what i want and what i need um and i remember when i woke up um, that time when I look, I saw myself in the mirror and I was like, dude, I don't even know who you are. I'd put on 40 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I was always a really bright, um, energetic, happy guy. And I was so depressed. I was, you know, uh, my clothes didn't fit. I didn't have a belt. So like I had to use a piece of rope to carry my pants. 
And, and I just, I wasn't who I thought I was anymore. And it was like the first time I'd seen myself in years. And that day I was like, I'm going to use tonight in a way that hopefully makes me OD or die. But right before I pass out, I will hopefully have been high enough. And I, and I did it and I didn't pass out and I didn't OD and I felt high enough for five minutes. And then I wanted more. And I don't know that I have ever felt that dejected in my life. I threw everything that I had at being high enough. And five minutes later, I wanted more. I just started crying. I was like, I can't even do this, man. I can't even, I can't even maintain my high. Like it's impossible. And that's when I became uh, open to either killing myself or finding a way to stop using one of the two. You reached that point that so many of us, God willing, reach where we realize in the innermost depths of our soul that I can't continue to drink, use, engage in this addictive cycle anymore, but I can't be sober either, yeah. right? And, and we're in that that seemingly impossible place where sobriety doesn't seem possible because we've tried it a thousand times before and it feels like shit, but we can't continue to use because it yeah. gets us into a place where we want to die, right? Yeah. What did you do? Well, I mean, it wasn't like an overnight thing, right? You know, shortly after that, I had an appointment with my doctor um, for a checkup. And I remember him in his office going over the paperwork and he said, Hey, do you, do you drink? And I was like, Oh, you know, I just, I just drink a little bit here and there. And he's like, well, I'm looking at you and the only thing higher than you are your liver enzymes. Mm. Like, and he's like, do you smoke cigarettes? And I was like, no, no, I don't smoke cigarettes. He's like, well, what's that yellow stain on your finger? That's a nicotine stain. Mm. Cause I was smoking two packs a day. Mm. And uh, he was like, if you continue at this rate, you won't see your 30th birthday. And that honestly didn't do anything for me in terms of what making me want to use. It was when I ran out of options. I mean, I think that's so true for so many of us. Yeah. Like it was when I was staying in my buddy's house, uh, like the longest unwelcome overnight guest for like three months, crashing on his floor, <laughs> stealing from him during the day. And my dad would meet me for breakfast which for me was like four in the afternoon, but he would meet me for breakfast. He would take me to Denny's like every two or three weeks. And he would say it's just because he wanted to buy me a meal, but I knew it's because he wanted to know that his son was still alive. Yeah. And every time he would meet me, he would offer to send me a rehab. And I'd be like, nope. And I finally came back to the apartment that I was crashing in. And I told my buddy, who by the way, was my hookup for my drugs. Um, about what my dad had offered yet again. And he said, you know what, you should go. And you know you have a problem when your drug hookup <laughs> is is telling you that you need to go to rehab. And, and the truth is, is that he didn't think I had a problem uh, necessarily. Like he wasn't thinking through a lens of, I want you to be happy. He just wanted me out of his house. That's right. <laughs> right? That's and totally. so I, I could read the writing on the wall. Now, now that man is still in my life actually because he's gone through a lot of growth and he, he was a brother and that's why he tolerated me because he knew I was screwed if he didn't. 
but um, he encouraged me to go. And so he convinced me that I needed a vacation. My whole effing life was a vacation, but I needed, <laughs> he was, I mean, you know, for those of us that have done it, it's not actually a vacation, but to the people outside, it looks like a vacation. Yeah, exactly. And, and, he, and I was like, well, I, don't, I won't have to worry about shelter and I won't have to worry about three meals a day. So I'll go and I'll check it out. Um, and my dad being a recovering alcoholic himself, I still remember, you know, I don't share this a lot in podcasts, but for this one, everybody will understand this. My dad's a recovering alcoholic. And, um, I remember him bring, buying me alcohol and bringing it to me to make sure I didn't end up in mm -hmm. DTs the day before mm -hmm. rehab. And I just mm -hmm. remember thinking I was never allowed to have alcohol in the house when I was growing up. Right. And they never had it. Like he, there were all these rules drawn around it. And for this man to go buy it bring it to me like that was his desperation to keep his son alive um so anyhow and that's love uh, right that that's an expression of is. love knowing that then that will allow you to stave off those dts until you can get into a place where they can take care of it medically yeah i, I but i hate that i put him in that position because yeah. uh, my dad my dad didn't do it um through recovery he's a white knuckler and so he's been a dry drunk um uh, for a long period in his life. So he didn't have mm -hmm. the tools to deal like necessarily to deal with going and buying it. So like I look back and I regret having him be in that position for me, but he did that because he didn't want me to die. Um, and the truth was I wasn't going to, I don't think I was going to end up in DTs. I'm fairly certain if I recall, I manipulated him just because I want some free alcohol. And that's what makes me regret that. So you reached this point where you had, had this epiphany that never, that it was never going to be enough, right? Yeah. You had that it was, it finally reached you that this is never going to be enough i thought that i was going to be able to get to a point where it's going to be enough and it turns out i still want more that it will never be enough and you're starting to outlast even the most uh, uh ardent supporters of you right so yeah. uh, so you find yourself in uh, treatment is this inpatient outpatient inpatient i went to inpatient i went to the betty ford uh center out in rancho mirage california it's very surreal uh going to rehab um and then i had a buddy like a guy that was like my mentor like when i showed up there and within the first five hours of me being there he uh escaped <laughs> he like left like we obviously <laughs> weren't like you know held captive but I was like, okay, crap. I guess I don't even know if I'm supposed to stay here or what. But um, no, I went to inpatient and then I got the message that nobody in inpatient rehab ever wants to get. And that was the doctors coming to me and saying, Mike, you're sicker than most of the addicts here and you need more treatment after you leave here. Right. <laughs> um, so How old me, were you at this point? I was 23. I turned okay. 24 in treatment. And they quickly discovered that you're going to need some some additional help yes yes and you know i was trying to explain to someone the other day they're like wow it must be really humiliating um to open up when you're in treatment i'm like actually no we are all at the bottom man right. you're collecting 28 people or whatever that have all said we are absolutely at the very bottom when we share <laughs> man it's normalizing it's like totally. it's the opposite but um no they they were like you think too much. And, and I remember someone told me that you can be, uh, you can't be too stupid to recover, but you can be too smart. And I was trying to outthink the disease and they were like, you really need to be able to get into your body and get out of your head and follow directions. And so mm -hmm. they sent me to a place. They actually gave me two brochure brochures. I was a Californian. I was voted like least likely to leave California 
and they gave me two brochures, one for my favorite place, Monterey, California, um, and the other for a place called Nunnally, Tennessee. And the brochure for Nunnally, Tennessee had like cowboys and horses on it. And I was like, F that, I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, and I went back to my room and I realized, I, I heard echoing, your best thinking got you here. Mm. Your best thinking got you here. And I, I was an atheist at the time, but the first time in my recovery that I chose God's will over mine was when I chose not only Tennessee, I chose the other place mm. simply because my will was telling me to go to Monterey. Mm. And they sent me out to not only Tennessee, which is near Nashville. And that's why I live in Nashville now. And no, I do not own a cowboy hat or cowboy boots, <laughs> but I do love it here. And the recovery here is awesome. <laughs> and Nashville's a great city. It is. It's, and you know, it was uh, my, my roommate at, in treatment told me, he said, I would put 2000 miles between me and everybody that I know if I were you, because I told him about my family and my friends and all that stuff. And so when they gave me that, those brochures, I'm like, well, there's the 2000 mile radius. I'm going to go ahead and take that. And then when I got out of treatment, I went to a halfway house and I, I realized there was tremendous recovery here in Nashville. And, um, and I even tried to leave Nashville once in my 17 years clean uh, and it didn't take, I, I, I was like, no, I love it here too much. So now I'm fairly certain I'll never leave here. One of the things that you mentioned very early as you were talking about your treatment experience is that intelligence can be a liability in our liability. recovery process. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is a liability. It look, look, intelligence is valuable. So like it's valuable in the world. Great. Just through the dimension of recovery, like not using, it is an effing liability. And so anyone that is fancies themselves smart, they need to be extra vigilant about their recovery um, because the disease is insidious. And, in, and you know, w one time someone said like, why would I trust, if my disease lives between my ears, why would I trust anything that comes out of it? Now, what mm -hmm. you and I both know is you, go, you, you, have, you engage in the process of recovery, you start to learn to spot the difference and you have the tools and you're able to use the systems and all that okay. kind of stuff. But early on, man, it is, um, people try to understand it. And the best thing my first sponsor, he was like a hardcore old timer. And the best thing he ever told me is he said, you do not need to know why. Shut up. All you need to know is how, and I'm gonna tell you how, and just do what I tell you to do. Mm. And it was a little gruff, but I mean, I, I'd asked him to help me save my life. And I was actively trying to think my way into the right actions. And it just wasn't working. Joe and Charlie were so instrumental in my early recovery. And they are, I remember very distinctly them saying that my problem and their problem was not a lack of knowledge not a lack of intellect, but a lack of power was the problem. I'm powerless mm. over drugs and alcohol, right? Yeah. It's not yeah. that if I get enough knowledge that I'm going to be okay. It's not, no. that doesn't help me. It's not like if I get smarter, that's going to help me. None of that helps me. I need a power greater than myself in order to be able to recover from this thing. Right. Yeah, dude. If knowledge was sufficient, then every 12 step fellowship has a core piece of literature, right? Um, and if, uh, if, if knowledge was sufficient, the way that we would solve addiction is we would hand you an effing book and we'd that's be right. done with it. That's it. And that's just not how it works. Um, you need the three legs of the stool that the books talk about, and then you need to go engage those. And unfortunately, or fortunately, you have to do it the rest of your life. So tell um, me about your recovery process and uh, what was your recovery, uh, methodology of choice? Yeah. So, um, 
Well, so I, uh, I was taught not to identify the specific fellowships, but, um, I, I, I'm a, I'm a home, I'm a member of a 12 step fellowship that is not, um, AA, um, but still same 12 steps. And, uh, I engaged the traditional 12 step structure. I got a sponsor, went to meetings, worked the steps, still do it today, do service, like the whole deal. Um, I did have not graduated my wife. When I met her, I had 12 years clean and she's like, you still go? What's wrong with you? I was like, what's wrong with me is I want to keep what I fucking have, man. Like I, <laughs> that's, what's wrong with me. Totally. Or like I'd have employees at the company that I, I companies I built and that I'd be like, I'm just a drug addict. And they'd be like, Oh Mike, don't say that. No, you're not. And be like, yes, I am. <laughs> I would, I would totally <laughs> annihilate everything that anyone here is holding, if not for recovery. So like, you know, people just, they get twisted. They give stigma to, to saying I'm an addict or I'm an alcoholic. The stigma needs to go to, I'm an active totally. addict or alcoholic. Totally. Recovery is a, is a superpower that most people, when they really start to understand its power in our lives, wish they had. So my process was I did the 90 meetings in 90 days. I got a home group. I did service. I did all the traditional 12 step stuff. Um, the only thing that's different about my experience and I'm not going to say it's completely different, but I, um, along the way, started to form a hypothesis that I could use everything that I had learned in a 12-step program and use it as a leadership system and use it as a professional development system. You know, I talked to a lot of um, recovering people and we we know the the, you know, when we think about our defects of character in all aspects of our lives. And when we think about practice these principles in all our affairs, we know that, that what that means is take, take what we learn here and apply it to all areas of our life. But whenever I talk to an addict or an alcoholic or whatever about their professional life, they have a tendency to compartmentalize the skills that they've learned. They're like, well, so like I, in my Ted talk, I talk about how, when I got out of treatment and and ended up in a halfway house, I needed to get a job. And I was in a job interview and I had five business days to get a job or I was screwed. And everything said, do not tell this man that I am a drug addict that just got out of rehab. And the reason I have a gap in my resume is because I have, I've been using the last three or four years. And so I was like, yeah, I know I have to do my recovery at night and I know I have to do it in the morning, but like I'm at a work situation now. So like, what are the work skills and what I like my life, my entire purpose right now is to articulate to anyone in recovery that any freaking person that's out there getting an MBA right now or going through a corporate training is suboptimal in their leadership skill set. And you have learned the secret to great leadership, but you have to understand that you need to apply what you've learned as militantly in your professional life as you learn to do in the other aspects of your life. And that's me giving advice. So I'm not going to do that in my experience. That's that's what I think people should do. So that, that you, was what was when different. When did you this come about? Like when did you when did that aha moment come to you where you had recognized that this thing isn't just good in my personal life. This thing just isn't good when I'm going to 12-step meetings. This thing isn't just good in my relationships. This thing can dramatically affect my work life. Okay. So 
it's because you're right. They do. By the way, you're right. They do compartmentalize. You're absolutely yes. what I say. They. I mean, many people in recovery, absolutely one hundred percent. We compartmentalize it. Yes. I, I learned very early on as I, you know, I'm an all or nothing guy, man. Like I, I either can do it a hundred percent or I do it zero percent. This is the way it is, right? And I turned my job, the job that I was hanging on to by a thread, that I was looked at as a pariah. I was called toxic. I was literally had one foot out the door and somebody pushing me out of it, right? Uh, before I got sober. And not 18 months later, right? It, 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 and I hated my job. I hated everybody there. They were all assholes, right? Uh, and working the steps and really embracing the principles of recovery, a complete 180 in terms of how I felt about my work, the people that were there, and none of that changed, right? Yep. And how successful I was in my career and now at a director level. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the only and thing that changed was me. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, there's to me, there's two layers to it. There's when we when we enter recovery, we stop being a detriment to ourselves and our skills and our natural capabilities start to come out. But to me, one of the challenges is when we enter 12-step recovery, we learn to take a mask off by putting a mask on. We become anonymous and then we share everything within the anonymous world. And, and what that teaches us is that we're supposed to practice these principles in that world. Mm -hmm. but, but sharing your recovery openly in a professional world, that's going to hold you back in some ways. And we're not explicitly taught that. It's just that I think that's an evolutionary thing. So this is what I found. I, my first sponsor encouraged me to share my identity as a recovering addict. Mm -hmm. He said, what's true in God's world anywhere is true everywhere. And that's why I was honest in that job interview and I got that job. But there were three different experiences that helped me really understand just how, how, like how much most people in recovery are underutilizing their skills professionally. So the first one was I entered a Fortune 50 company in corporate America and I had an eight-year career. I was a complete outsider because I was taught to do what I call live mask-free. That's what recovery taught me, not wear a mask. And what I've learned is there are four masks holding back every individual team and organization in this world. Four masks. People say yes to things that they could say no to. Mm -hmm. They hide a weakness. They avoid difficult conversations and they hold back their unique perspective. Well, as an addict, I was saying yes to drugs when I shouldn't and saying no saved my life. I was hiding my addiction, which was my weakness. And when I shared it, it transformed my life. And I was avoiding every difficult conversation that could come to an intervention or anything like that. And I learned how to have difficult conversations. And then what makes me special, whatever the, the unique talents, everybody's got a unique talent or beautiful perspective in this world, that was completely being covered up by my addiction. Mm -hmm. And when I entered recovery, I, I let that out. But for some reason, all the people around me thought, yeah, say no. Don't hide your weak. Don't hide your weakness. Have all the difficult conversations. Represent your unique perspective, but not if the customer's in front of you or your right. boss is there. Right. And 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 practice these principles in all our affairs. So what I realized was, the reason there are so many twelve step fellowships is we need identification. So everybody could have just stayed clean or sober or whatever using AA. But but it was helpful once we had enough drug addicts. In, in AA to have a fellowship to specific de designated for, for drugs. And, and anybody, it's all the same to me. Like, it's all good. But identification can be helpful. So what I realized is nobody had ever said, 
Here's how to use what you've learned in 12-step recovery specifically in your professional life, not generally. And so when I went into this Fortune 50 world, I would say no, I would share my weakness, I would have difficult conversations, and I represent my unique perspective. And the truth is, is that I felt completely effing alone. I was different than everybody else because everybody else around me was hiding their true self because that's what the leaders before them did. Mm. But I couldn't afford to do that. I was a recovering addict and I was taught to practice, practice these principles in all my affairs. So by saying no, I saved a ton of time. By sharing my weaknesses, I grew like a mofo. By having difficult conversations, I actually had more effective relationships. And my unique perspective, even if the boss's boss was in the room, I wasn't scared to ask the question, allowed me to go from having mentors to managing those mentors. You know, I went from a, a rep in a kiosk and a temporary rep at a kiosk in a mall for um, for this Fortune 50 company to in eight years being a corporate manager with 19 direct reports and a $250 million P&L with no college degree as a homeless drug addict when I started. And the only reason I could explain that for my success was the fact that I was actually using my 12-step skills as a weapon, as a professional weapon to be more successful and differentiate myself. And, and so I left there and I founded a company and I said, what if I built an entire company on these principles? What if I, so the way that I, it might be helpful for the listener. So what I've done is I've looked back at my entire career and I've codified what it means when you apply the 12 steps to a professional life. And, and what does it look like specifically? And to me, it's practice rigorous authenticity. It's surrender the outcome mm. and it's do uncomfortable work. Mm. And there is no leader in the world that is being trained how to do those three things. Mm. They're taught to be authentic. Yes. We're now off, we're authentic right. no matter what. Right. Rigorous is no matter the stakes. They aren't taught to surrender the outcome. Who the hell teaches a leader to surrender the outcome? You're responsible for outcomes. They focus on what they can't control. Recovering people, we, we surrender what we can't control. We focus on what we can't control and we reclaim a tremendous amount of energy. And leaders will do a tremendous amount of work. They'll do hard work and smart work and that's intellectual and physical. But uncomfortable work is emotional. And we have all seen somebody in the workforce do eight hours of hard work because they were avoiding five to 10 minutes of uncomfortable work. They didn't want to have the hard conversation with the customer, with the boss, with a significant other, with the employee, with the coworker, with the partner. But we had to do amends, baby. Like we had to do the uncomfortable work. So we're actually practiced at that. And so we're able to apply these three principles. And so I built an entire company on those principles. We had no competitive advantage and we became an Inc. 500 company. We grew 20,000% in six years. Everybody knew I was a drug addict. It became our competitive advantage. And we were acquired by a publicly traded company in 2015. So, And that's using what you had learned in recovery and applying that to the, the workplace. Yeah. And, 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 being, and, and being intentional about it. Because see, I built a company with 50 employees and most of them were not addicts. Mm. So I had to be intentional in teaching them what it meant to practice these principles at work, right? So like in the job, in a job interview, as an example, um, everybody will always ask, what's your greatest weakness? And then everybody will always give you the same bullshit answer. Like, <laughs> oh, well, I work too hard. I, know, or, I exactly. care too much about my work exactly. or I'm too organized. <laughs> totally. Too, totally. It, take the negative that you want. Too diligent. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's manipulative. We know a thing or two about that. <laughs> so what I would do in the job interview is I would say, okay, that's a great interview answer. Thank you for that. I don't care. I want to know what your greatest weakness is as a human being on this earth. 
And then they would usually say something like, um, I, I, I eat too much Postmates. And I'd be like, all right, let me show you what I'm looking for. I work really hard and I make sacrifices. And when I experience success, I don't know how to enjoy it. Hmm. And, and, and I'm not saying like, oh, it's great. I have success. I'm saying it actually demotivates the people around me. It drags them down mm. and it takes the wind out of their sails. Mm. And it's not helpful for the people in my life at all. It hurts them. Mm. And I can't spin that as a positive. That's my weakness right now that I am working on. What is yours? And if they couldn't rip the mask off and give me their greatest weakness as a human being and, and get vulnerable and get vulnerable right and get vulnerable right. like i had to do with a sponsor like we do in meetings with full of strangers i it did not matter how talented they were what their resume was how scarce talent was for the role i would not hire them one of the things that i've embodied as a recovery principle in my own workplace which i found extremely helpful and i want to get your view on this is I really do embody this servant attitude toward my team. Meaning, I work really hard at trying to make them as successful as possible and enabling their success. And I view myself as I work for them. Yep. I'm their boss. I'm, I'm responsible for that entire team. But I don't view it that way. I view it in a way that I am enabling your success I work for you. I am working as serving you. And if, I help, if, I, if I'm able to make, help you be successful, we all win. And yep. by virtue, by default, I'm successful. So I don't concentrate on my own success. I don't right. concentrate on my own uh, power and prestige. I, I concentrate on building them up. Yep. Right? Yeah. You know, the, the only thing I would add to that, so... I think recovery teaches you how to be a servant leader. Um, and so that's, that's what you're talking about. Um, the one caveat to that, it's very, there's a lot of people that will say like ears, like Simon Sinek says, like leaders eat last, that kind of stuff. Hmm. To me, I think that we are far too focused on leading others. Hmm. And I don't think that we lead ourselves enough. And to me, the greatest leader in the world is a sponsor because what a sponsor does is they say, actually, I'm not taking responsibility for your side of the street at all. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I have all the answers. What I'm going to do is I'm going to use this process to lead myself. And then I'm going to openly, vulnerably, and transparently share my wins and losses with you equally. Most leaders only want to share, you know, the challenges that they've overcome. Right. Like they'll say, hey, you know what? Yeah, I struggled a long time ago with something, but now I'm good. But tell me what you're struggling with right now. Like, no, a great leader says, I'm in the middle of this shit right now. I have no idea how the story ends, but walk with me and see what I do. And that's what a sponsor does because they, they lead themselves. And in doing that, they show other people how to lead themselves. And they invite you into the process. Yes, because most leaders think they have to go figure it out behind closed doors they have to have the answer before they show you that they're weak, vulnerable, and imperfect or else you'll stop following them. But what people really want is how the fuck do I lead myself in this crazy world? Right. How do I do that? And when someone invites you into the process, when it is vulnerable and scary where they don't have the answer, it is so sweet when they find the answer and you're there along for the ride or they don't and they experience complete and total failure and then you get to see how they manage through that. Right. 
but right. they show you how they lead themselves. And so many leaders think that they have to hide. And that's and that and that was true. Command and control leadership was a thing. It was really Absolutely. popular. It was great. And it's fucking extinct. The other piece about that sponsor sponsee relationship that I think is an interesting dynamic from a leader to a team is this idea that I, I can I can show you what works for me. Yeah. Right? I can show yeah. you and what it, doesn't. And what and doesn't. doesn't. And yeah. and I'm going to invite you to take what works for you too, right? Like and, yeah. and if, but I'm not respond if if you fail Right, because you decided not to do anything that I did, uh, then right. then I get to take responsibility for that, right? They I say, you right. know, carry the message, not the alcoholic, right? So yeah, right. And I'm not saying like you don't like performance manage someone, right? Like Have I'm not to. saying you, right. you 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 don't do your basic management, but I think that a lot of leaders think that they, they they just don't understand the power of being a real human in front of their people, because all the people that they lead are humans, and they're all trying to figure out this thing called being a human, and it's really hard. And it gets harder every day. And the one thing that's clear is everybody is hiding their true self. And so when a leader leads themselves, I mean, when you think about great leaders in history, do they worry about what other people think and let that stop them? I mean, you know, Winston Churchill, Abraham Lincoln, Rosa Parks, like the greatest leaders in the world took were willing to take an unpopular stance. They led themselves. And that's what happens when I say I'm like I'm a drug addict. And that's that fear piece. One of the things I think is really interesting in terms of how you explained and how you extolled your experience in corporate America, living your authentic self, was walking through that fear. And we have a very intimate experience with fear as recovering alcoholics and or drug addicts in that inventory process and we engage a higher power and if we're really serious about that right and we make an earnest effort at engaging that higher power and we walk through that inventory process we realize it's all fear it's all fear so then we we have a completely different relationship with fear than most people do we have experience that, surrendering the outcome and doing the uncomfortable work. That's right. And we've been like, able to understand that we can walk through fear. Yeah. And we know what it feels like then to walk through fear, through character defects, right? Well, if I surrender that character defect, what will happen? What will, what will, what will be left? What will I be? That's fear. If I, if I surrender this character defect, well, then I won't get that stuff that I want or need or think I can't live without and we surrender that right we surrender all of that we walk through that fear and we get to we have a very intimate relationship with fear so your corporate america experience around being you when everybody else was being somebody else is all about fear is it not yeah i mean so here's the thing that a recovering addict knows that most people don't 99% 99% of the worst things that ever happened to me happened only in my head. Mm. That's what we know. Mm. And we have practiced testing that hypothesis over and over and over again. And so when you think about being in the workplace, um, I've, I've created what I call a mask assessment. So it'll tell you what of you know, those four masks that I mentioned before are holding you back. Um, saying yes when you could say no, hiding weakness, avoiding difficult conversations, holding back your unique perspective. And I've given, I've, I've worked with companies like Google, Dell, 
um, startups, nonprofits, and I've assessed a thousand leaders, CEOs down to front level employees to uh, freelancers, and they waste approximately 500 hours a year managing optics. Mm. 500, 500 hours a year. That's almost, that's almost an entire uh, quarter or like 12 or 13 weeks of productivity. Um, 90% of leaders report wearing a mask at work and hiding their true self. And so every recovering addict right now listening to this, you know how to practice rigorous authenticity, serenity outcome, and do uncomfortable work because if you don't, you will die. You also have a place where you can go practice. It just costs you an hour and some bad coffee. That's it. Most professionals and leaders do not have that. And if you apply these principles as a professional superpower, you will say no when other people say yes. You will share a weakness and grow when other people stifle their growth and hide their weaknesses. You will have the difficult conversations and have better terms and relationships with customers, employees, bosses, and partners. And you will unleash your unique perspective on the world, truly lead yourself, and create a level of innovation or identify blind spots that most other people can't by literally unlocking the superpower that lives inside of you, by being your true self, because you actually have a language and a skill set and a community that will support you in doing that. You just have to stop seeing it as this thing that you do for your recovery. You have to see it as your fucking MBA. Mm. And all the while, the amount of energy, time, and resources that you spent wearing that mask and trying to be somebody or a different version of yourself that you think people expect need and are looking for, you don't have to do that. And you can apply that to being as impactful as possible in your work. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be uncomfortable. But that's what they told me about recovery. And mm-hmm. it's worked for 17 years. I mean, you know, so like it, it, there's a price to be paid. People that go through the door first get their nose bloodied. So when I was open about being an addict and, 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 I, and I practiced being my true self at work, did some people try to take advantage of it? Sure. Some kids started a rumor that I'd relapsed. That's why I was beating him in the rankings and all that kind of stuff. And it took me two weeks to realize that nobody noticed and cared what he said. Right. I spent two weeks <laughs> planning you know, for my next job right. or whatever. And I realized that nobody was taking him seriously. When I told my customers when I was running this Inc. 500 company that I'm a recovering addict, um, you know, I thought that we wouldn't get them and it found that they actually, the fact that I was willing to own what other people would think is the worst thing about me, which I think is the best thing about me, um, m- made them open up and we experienced a level of connection that is really uncommon in a professional world. And so I'll tell you what, yeah, in, embracing that. And I embrace that across all my, all aspects of my life. All of my clients know that I'm a recovering alcoholic and recovering addict. They know it. Uh, and uh, great opportunities arise all the time to be able to share that with people. Usually when uh, I'm invited out for happy hour or some of the, you know, and I, and I don't just say no, I say I am in recovery. And yeah. we have a conversation around it. And I'm able to share a, a you know, Reader's Digest version of, you know, uh, hey, it, it's, it's the greatest thing of my life right now. Um, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. And when they realize that you embrace it, you own it, and you embody it as a part of who you are, and you wouldn't be you without it, they really have a different perspective around it. And that's the stuff that smashes that stigma. When you own it, 
and you then allow them to understand how amazing it's been from a personal transform transformational piece for yep. you, you know, they're in it with you. They, I mean, they're all smiles, man. Well, that's what happened with my employees and the people that I was coaching when I was building my company is I realized that they started to see what an asset my recovery was and they right. wanted to learn how to do it. And so that's why I start. that's why I did my Ted talk because I was trying to say, how do I make, you know, the, the, the thing that Bill Wilson did that was so beautiful is he took these principles that were based in a uh, religion in the Oxford group, out of the right? Oxford the group. groups. Yeah. Yeah. And he stripped the religion out to make it accessible to all. That's right. And so what I've attempted to do with my book and with my Ted talk and with what I'm doing now is to strip out the requirement that you're an addict to be able to understand how to apply these principles in the area that impacts you the most, your professional life, because that's how we provide for ourselves. And that's where we spend all this time. And that's also the place of greatest contrast. And so when, when you know, I, I don't say, hey, man, when I go to my employees or people I coach now, I, I don't say like, hey, come work the 12 steps with me because they're not as sick as I was. They don't need it. <laughs> um, but when I say practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work, they go, what the F, like, I understand everything you just said, but I don't understand how to apply those as a leadership skill set. Nobody's taught me that. And that's, to me, that's, that's, here's my dream. I think a lot of us turn to addiction because the world teaches us to hide ourselves. I think the response 80 years ago to that malady was the 12 steps. And I think that tool set that helped us solve the problem of addiction is the key to teaching the world how not to hide itself so that we don't need to use. Mm -hmm. And so with these three principles and with the book that I wrote, my goal is to create a mask-free society. And if there's a mask-free society where people understand that this isn't just a way to lead, this is a way to live. But in order to lead this way, you have to live this way. The same thing a recovering addict has to. Like there's a lot of people who'd be like, oh, I was authentic, you know, back in the day. Everybody knows that time they kept it real. Right. Right. <laughs> but but I'm talking about I, I had to be real when uh, my job, my housing and my life was on the line. Mm -hmm. I had to be real eight years in corporate America. In my TED talk, I talk about this moment where our largest customer, we failed them and we didn't. My, my team said, don't tell them. And if we told them, it would make me bankrupt and make us go out of business. But I told them anyway, and they they appreciate that so much that they actually helped us grow. And then I gave this TED talk, and I thought, okay, like I it's a talk, it's called "Great Leaders Do What Drug Addicts Do," and it's where I, I talk about these three principles. And I thought that people, I was scared to share my story. Um, I was scared to 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 assert that applying the principles in recovery to leadership and to business explicitly is a key to success. And then it took off and went worldwide and it's got over a million views and, and I'm so honored and humbled by that. But the thing that gets, keeps me going is I get these messages from addicts and from leaders and leaders in recovery, all of them, like whether they're an active addiction, whether they're, it's a, it's a, someone in recovery, whether it's someone who's a leader or someone who's a leader in recovery, everybody's like, man, these three principles are a game changer. And I'm like, yeah, man, like all of us, for the last 80 years, we've all known the secret. There's millions of us in every language, in every city in this world. I mean, think about this. 80 years ago, if you were an addict or an alcoholic, your only hope was a jail institution or a death. Mm. And now we have a tool set that allows millions of people 
to lead themselves, reclaim a tremendous amount of energy by being true to themselves and thrive both personally and professionally. Imagine what would happen if we then said, okay, you know what? The reason that our leaders in this world aren't authentic is because we have misdiagnosed the problem. When you think about an addict and you want them to stop using, you can tell them stop as much as you want and it doesn't do jack. It doesn't change until you tell them what to start instead, right? And so we got a step-by-step system. And meanwhile, we've got all these leaders and all these thought leaders and inspirational TED Talk people talking about, oh, authenticity would be great. It would be great. But still, a politician never answers a question with, I don't know. It's a fantasy. And the reason is, is that there isn't a, how do you do it? There isn't the equivalent of the 12 steps. So what if we could equip every leader with a specific system inspired by the 12 steps in my experience leading and and give them the actual how to like in my book it distills everything down a step-by-step process to one minute a day that's someone can do this in one minute it's called the mask-free minute and if you do this mask-free minute one minute a day you can start living and leading mask-free and i got all these people that have done that what if we 80 years from now had mask-free leaders all around the world the same way we have recovering addicts and alcoholics all around the world like that would create so much positive change that I can't even fathom it. And I'm pretty sure that won't happen in my lifetime, which is going to suck because I'm going to be dead when we eventually get there and I won't be able to enjoy it. <laughs> that doesn't, JFK said, if you know, even though if we don't complete our work in this lifetime, it's no reason not to start. That's exactly correct. <laughs> One of the things that I've thought to myself so many times and shared with uh, brothers and sisters in recovery is, boy, if the rest of the world worked the 12 steps, it'd be a much different world. It would be a much... dude better world but you know i didn't work the 12 steps until i literally had no other choice yeah right so i i I always thought in my mind well the reason is because it's hard and it is uncomfortable and it doesn't make sense right away and you're doing these actions that don't make a lot of sense at the beginning and then once you're done with the process these transformative results are very clear and apparent but it's not when you're working through it right so uh this idea that you could do this uncomfortable work that, that and that that people that are not in recovery people that are not drug addicts alcoholics uh can apply these universal principles we're people right we're all people yep. Right. So if we do the work and if I act my way into it, right, then the brain will follow. Yes. And and I think the the key here is the reason we don't have authentic leaders is because we have misdiagnosed the problem. We think they should just start being authentic. We haven't understood and acknowledged that they have an addiction to and their drug of choice is the mask. Mm. And if they can acknowledge that they have an addiction, because to me, addiction, what I was taught was when you do the same thing over and over again, despite negative consequences. Yes. Well, that's well documented. That It's actually well documented that, that wearing a mask as a human, as a leader is like not good for you and it's not good for the people around you. So if we can, if we can look at it through the lens of addiction, suddenly the principles that you and I both know become the secret ingredient to every leader's un- un- unleashing their full potential in this world and having a better experience but they have to be willing to do what you and I did. 
That's why my book starts with uh, the first chapter is, hi, I'm Mike, I'm a drug addict. And the next chapter is, you're blank and you're a mask addict. Mm -hmm. And then chapter three is the addict's advantage. And it's like why you want to be an addict because then you get access to recovery. It's interesting. Back when Alcoholics Anonymous first started, they dealt with low bottom cases only because they thought that those were the only people that ha would have the motive, the true motivation to do this really hard work that needed yep. this really uncomfortable work like nobody else would do it. Why would you? And so it was only super low bottom cases. And as the... 12-step programs evolved, they quickly realized that people that still had a car, two cars in the driveway, <laughs> yeah. and a, yeah. a, you know, right, could also yeah. recover, right? And this is next level, right? This is that next level. Like, you, you know, you don't have to uh, abuse drugs and alcohol for, you know, two decades in order to realize that you have a problem, right. admit that you have a problem, and then be willing to do whatever it takes in order to recover from that problem. And then once you've recovered from that problem, then apply these principles to all of your affairs, including work. Well, you know, we, we say it's an inside job, right? So to me, um, one of the best things anyone ever told me, I'm sure you've heard this, but your bottom is when you stop digging. And the bottom is an internal bottom. And that, and, and so they were, they were chasing the most extreme cases. That makes sense. Cause that's the most, that's the easiest way to decipher that someone's, you know, at this terrible place. But as we've made these principles and these programs more accessible and we've had more people using it, what you find is, is that like, I've got a really good friend, um, who never lost her job, never couldn't pay anything. Like everything was fine L on the outside. She was great. But on the inside, she had hit a bottom that was hurting her as much as the bottom that I hit was, you know, and mine wasn't as low as some of the other people that I know that was even worse. And so we have to recognize that we can never truly see from the outside looking in what makes someone feel like they're hitting their bottom. And then that also helps us understand something that most professionals do not understand that success is an inside job. Success mm -hmm. is not about the title, the bank account all this other stuff. I'm not saying I'm not a human and I don't care about those things. I do. I'm an addict. I want my stuff, but it's about inner success ultimately. And that's why you see CEOs that are billionaires taking themselves out. And that's why you can see a recovering addict or alcoholic walk into a meeting with almost nothing and be happier than they were. Like it's an inside job. And, and, and so these, you know, they, they created these, these steps to solve a very specific like health problem. But the, I, I don't, I don't like, could, could anybody have foreseen that this would be the framework to thrive as a human on this earth? Like, I just don't know if, the, I just don't know if anybody could have seen that, but it is, it is, it is the way. It is the way out, I might say. And yeah. uh, right. So two things before we close, Mike, number one, the greatest piece of spiritual wisdom that you have learned in your 17 plus years of recovery? I would say that most of the people I know in recovery don't understand how important it is to practice a daily in 10th and 11th step. Mm. And for those of us in 12 step 
And so it was when, you know, it may not be like, you know, uh, just trust God, like some like saying like that, but like, for me, it was, I can do all this work and, and yes, 12 says practice these principles in all our affairs, but that's the result. All the work I do one through nine is one time transactional work. It can be one time again, I can do it again, but what allows me to keep all that change is 10 and 11. Mm. What allows me to keep all that work in my daily life is 10 and 11. And so for me, moving from an academic understanding of my spiritual condition to an experiential one required that I do a daily inventory, that I meditate and that I pray. And I just want to point out that meditation and mindfulness are really hot right now, but I think the steps were first published in 39. Yes. Um, and meditation was in that step. So we knew a thing or two about the importance of that a long time ago, but I don't know about you, but it took me 10 years in recovery before I did a daily inventory and a daily meditation five. Yeah. I mean, and so I, I know so many addicts that say, okay, I did that once, but the best piece of advice I got was actually execute 10 and 11 on a daily basis and your spiritual condition will be significantly different. And that, when you look through all the steps, that's what's required for my defects to be removed. That's what's required for me to be able to connect with my higher power. I need to actually do 10 and 11 on a daily basis. The greatest book that you read, the book that made the biggest difference for you in your recovery was what? Um, the Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown. So, well, okay. So wait, for my recovery, like all kinds of recovery literature, 12-step literature, like yeah. all that kind of stuff. But but we all know about that. But, the, but Brene Brown in The Gifts of Imperfection says that she went to meetings for a period of time and she wishes that there was a 12-step fellowship for everybody else that isn't at sick. Mm. And that is what I'm trying to create. Uh, a version of that. But but what she did was she gave me permission. I was sitting there as a CEO of this Inc. 500 startup and I kept telling my mentors how I wanted to operate as a leader, that I wanted to go to my team every week and declare my weaknesses. And they're like, you do not do that. That is naive and stupid and foolish. And so I felt really um, like a kid wearing a suit. I felt unqualified to be the CEO of a company. I felt less than and I read The Gifts of Perfection by Brene Brown, and she talks about um, authenticity and vulnerability. And then she had followed that up with a book called Daring Greatly. And in, in those books, I got permission to use my 12-step skills as a differentiated leadership skill set as a CEO of a fast-growing startup. And while that made a lot of my mentors uncomfortable and they thought I was stupid, it made a world of difference for me, uh, for my employees, for my customers and the patients that we impacted and it, and it tra transformed my life. And none of that would have been possible if she hadn't um, written that book, I don't think. I'm a huge Brene Brown fan. Uh, me too. And definitely, definitely in her fan club. So uh, spot on with those. I got to tell you, great leaders live like drug addicts. How to lead like your life depends on it. A tremendous book. Again, the amount of spiritual wisdom that's packed into this and really in a way that's super accessible for Thanks. folks that are either in recovery or if you're not in recovery, super, super accessible. Very, very uh, uh, um, uh, uh, interesting way to be able to apply that to our work lives. So I can't thank you enough. Michael, Brody, wait for being on the Way Out podcast. 
couple quick things to close for everybody. Uh, check the show notes. We will have your TED Talk. We will have uh, a link to the new book as well as the, uh, uh, the your your spiritual uh, wisdom on 10 and 11, which I love. Uh, you know, I, I got to tell you, man, five, it took five years for me to to meditate daily. And it's there's a reason they call it a practice. It's yeah. a practice. It's it not is. a perfection. Like I, yeah. I didn't start and then it was perfect. No, it's a, it's definitely a practice. And there's days that I'm tuned in on it. And there's days where it's a struggle. Totally. Right? Yeah. And that is okay. That is okay. Right? Uh, uh, but that daily prayer and that daily meditation really does make it. And, and I wouldn't, now I have done it for over 90 days every day i i would never i wouldn't do without it i just wouldn't i just i no. just wouldn't do without it like you know what i mean like how oh, dude, how did i not do this before but right it's it's trans, uh i as an addict want the quick fix i want totally. the quick thing right but if you want to build muscle you got to lift weights consistently if you want to be able to run a marathon you got to run consistently and you know the movies give you the music that makes it a two-minute thing where you see the person get buffed and get like really great, but it actually takes like a year, right? Um, totally. That that muscle that you develop by meditating every day and praying is it's a muscle that just you build bit by bit by bit. But at some point, for me at least, um, and I really resonate with what you're saying. I realized, wow, I'm acting differently. Like. I have more impulse control when it comes to food. Hmm. Um, I don't respond as quickly when when I'm upset. Um, I'm able to be a little bit more comfortable when I'm trapped in a moment where I have to wait and I'm bored. Like suddenly I start noticing these differences, right? Um, and it didn't happen all at once and it happened one moment, but eventually it was like, holy crap, just like us with 12-step recovery in general, it's like, holy crap, my entire life has changed. Definitely, it's a discipline. There's there's this discipline that's being, I'm embodying that's allowing me then to apply that discipline muscle in other areas of my life. Yeah, totally. Michael, thank you so much for being on the Way Out Podcast. If you want to reach out to Michael, I'll have links to his contact info as well. You can also email the show at share at wayoutcast.com. That's share at wayoutcast.com. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. That was great. Thank you for being a part of the Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.